The day we live in is a very challenging day, and we see some of the most uh, important debates going on in the history of the world. Today we are debating in our culture the place of marriage. We're even in a place where we're debating the definition of what a marriage is and even the importance of family. I was blessed a few weeks ago to go to a meeting uh, with our elders uh, in which Rod McFarlane had a, a co-worker with his over at the law school, a man named Adam McLeod, to present some statistics to us about what's going on in families today. And, and what I want to start with this morning is what I call two eye-opening studies. One was done by the University of Texas, the other by Princeton University, where they're looking at some of the things that we're debating today. It's one thing to debate it. It's one thing to redefine it. It's another thing to see what are the results of what we're doing. And, and these, these studies were shocking even in the academic world. Now, let's, let's start off with the first one from the University of Texas about the, the need and importance of parents. And you're going to see all kinds of statistics. I've got copies of this in the lobby if you'd like to get it afterwards because we're going to go rather quickly. Here's what they're looking at in this study. They're looking at what difference does the family structure make in children's lives. So you see on the left-hand corner there, this are, these are the child outcomes. IBF means intact biological family. And again, these are just statistics, all right? And I just want you to look at these without judgment, but to look at these. Um, let's start over the left side. Unemployment. The child who grows up in an intact biological family is about 8%. A single parent, it's 13%. A divorced a person, a child in a divorced family with a step parent, it's about 14%. Divorced, unmarried, 15%. If there are two dads in the home, 20%. Two moms in the home, 28%. Go, go to the next line. Welfare dependent. Intact biological family, 10%. <coughs> Single parent, 30%. Divorce with a step parent, 30%. Divorce, unmarried, 31%. Two dads, 23%. Two moms, 38%. Is there going to be sexual abuse in this child's life? If they grow up in an intact biological family, the odds are about 2%. Single parent, 10%. Divorced step-parent with a step-parent, 12%. Divorced unmarried, 10%. Two dads, 6%. Two moms, 23%. Sexually assaulted. Will they be sexually assaulted in their life? 8% in the intact biological family. 16% with the single parent. 16% with the divorce with a step-parent. 24 with the divorced unmarried, 25% with two dads, 31% with two moms. Will they have an affair as an adult? Intact biological family, 13%. Single parent, 19%. Divorce with step parent, 19%. Divorce unmarried, 12%. Two dads, 25%. Two moms, 40%. Do you see the difference? Do you see what's happening? Again, th this is a study not done by a Christian. This was not done by Faulkner University or Freed Harbor University, okay? Th this was done by the University of Texas, not exactly a bastion of traditional values and conservative beliefs. And yet when they look at what is going on, it is absolutely breathtaking the difference it makes in a child's life and where they're reared. And then the Princeton University study called Marriage Matters is talking more about adult outcomes. 
What does it look like with an adult who's in an intact marriage or an unmarried male or an unmarried female? That's our next study. We'll, we'll go to that one, all right? And again, you can pick this up later if you'd like to look at it closely. Poverty rates in intact marriage, about 5%. Unmarried male, 14%. Unmarried females, 28 to 42%. One thing you're going to see as we look through some of these things today is the people that are being hurt the most by what has happened in America in marriages and families are the women. Okay? That's who's, who's getting the, the, the toughest blow in this. Income levels, intact marriage, 73,000. Unmarried male, 44,000. Unmarried female, 30,000. And just a couple things about male incarceration, prison rates, 8% in an intact marriage, 40% for an unmarried male. Male unemployment, 6% in intact marriage, 24% in an unmarried male. Now, I know those, those statistics are, are far-ranging, and, and I hope they get your attention because we live in a culture that says what well, every form of marriage or family that you have, they're all equal. And no one has the right to, to say this is the way it's supposed to be. We all should have the right to define these things the way we want to. Let me give you some, some quotations that I think will help put this maybe a little bit more in perspective for you. William Tucker wrote a book called Marriage Civilization, where he studied the history of marriage and the history of the world. Not a Christian perspective, but here's what he comes out. Here's his bottom line conclusion. Those who form traditional families succeed, those who don't fail. That's pretty blunt language that interprets those statistics. Our president, Barack Obama, in the year 2008, made this statement. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely, likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundation of our community are weaker because of it. Guys, listen, the statistics don't lie. Whether we like what I've just shared with you or not, this is what empirical studies are saying. Now, some of these very professors in these universities who studied this and presented this, they've become the messenger with a bullseye on their back because we don't want to hear these numbers. You know, what we would maybe want rather do is shoot the messenger than to listen to what these things are saying. Now, let me be upfront here. I know some of the things I'm saying today for many of you in this room are extremely painful. I know for many of us, some of the things we're going to talk about today are very controversial, especially in the day that we live. I ask you to please stay with me. Please stay. Don't, don't turn this off by what you've just seen. Because I think there are some good answers and good things that we can look at. Well, let's acknowledge this first of all. The family is broken, all right? We're all um, super aware of the divorce rate at about 50%. That, that, that has a great effect on everything we're talking about. But let me give you another statistic, I think, that, that also relates to the statistics we just looked at. 
And that's the out of wedlock birth rate in America today is 40%. 40% of children born in America today are not born in a family with both parents. And when you saw the statistics we saw earlier, now you understand. Now listen to this. This ought to frighten us. In our community, in the city of Montgomery, Alabama, 59.8% of children are born out of wedlock. So just the foundation of marriage is crumbling around us. A lot of it would have to do with our view of commitment. It's obvious from the stats that the idea of committed marriage and committed families is fading more and more. You know, even the view of marriage. There there are a lot of people today who buy into the concept that marriages should be open sexually which again is going to mess up the children because if you have a male who's sleeping with more and more people, the odds are he will produce children from a multiple number of women, which will again end up meaning that the children are the ones who will lose more than anybody else. And then there's the whole question today is, should marriage be permanent? That's, in, that's incredibly being questioned. Should it be permanent? When we see the divorce rate, when we see the struggle people are having, maybe we ought to come up with something else. The Washington Post just one year ago had an op-ed piece entitled, Wed Lease. The, the uh, challenge there was, instead of us having wedlock, where you're committed for life, why don't we have wed lease? Why don't, the article say, why don't we borrow from real estate and create a marital lease. Then people could get married, commit themselves for five or maybe 10 years, and the end of that time, they could renegotiate, or they could look at whether they want to renew their marriage or not. The idea of the article and the thought was that would decrease the messiness of divorce. It would more fit the culture that we're living in. So, to walk out of a marriage would be as if you were walking out of a rental apartment with no responsibilities. But this violates the basic level of what marriage is supposed to be from the beginning. Marriage is supposed to be when a man and a woman came together to become husband and wife, and as they bore children in the sexual union, to become father and mother. What's happened in our formula today is that more times than not, the father has become expendable. He may not be there. The odds are he's probably not there. We like to think that's not doing too much damage. You just saw in the statistics, it's doing incredible damage. One thing we found out in the research is there's no such thing as parenting. There is mothering and there is fathering, and they're two very distinctive things. And, and they cannot be just simply provided by one person there. So it's very challenging. Fathers are not expendable. Our culture, our crime, our incarceration rate, our abuse rate are all results of thinking it's not that big a deal. And then on top of this, the family's being broken by what's going on today in America is the redefinition of marriage. 
If you read the newspaper, watch the news, you know that over the last few months, the American court system has taken upon itself to redefine marriage, despite the votes of every state that's ever voted on it. it um, it's, it's being changed. Where we have always defined, and all cultures have defined marriage as the union between a man and a woman, now our courts are telling us we have no right to impose that, that marriage can, between, can be between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. Who would have even dreamed five years ago, even just five years ago, that this would happen? And there's lots of arguments being made about this. That's the big debate of our day. That's the big challenge. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to go back to the beginning, to the one who thought of marriage and the family, the one who instituted it, and the one who would know better than anybody else what constitutes a family. So let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we're going to start reading in verse 20 of chapter 2. Understand we've had the creation scene. God has created all these different things, and every, after every creation scene, God has said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. But after he's created everything, there is a point where the rhythm is changed, and he says it's not good. What was not good? What was not good was for man to be alone. All right? Man had named all the species, but he had not found one as a companion for himself. He had watched all the species walk down as companions, but he didn't have his own companion. And so that's what begins to happen in verse 20. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. He didn't have a helper. Now, some might read that and say, well, that's a helper. Wow, is that, is that what we're going to call a wife, is a helper? Understand, this is not a term of subordination. The term helper is used some 21 times in the, um, in the Old Testament. 15 times it's used to refer to God. So to be called a helper or a helpmeet in the older translations is not a dig against women. It's a reflection of even God. So look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out of the man's ribs. You know, really the the literal word there is he took out of his side. The idea there is he made woman as a partner with man. And he closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to man. Understand here, God is the initiator and the institutor of marriage. He brings the man and woman together. He performs the first wedding ceremony. At last, the man exclaimed. That's an incredible word there. It's an exuberant word. When man first sees woman, what he's really saying there literally is, wow, look at that. Uh, Some people have tried to say, you know, God created man. It was not good. So he said, let me do better. So he created woman, all right? I, I don't buy into that, but I do buy into this. When the man saw the woman, he exclaims, wow, this is out of this world. This one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. There's the innocence of the garden. There's some important words there. The word join is a sense of permanence. The the term Two become one is a sense of monogamy. That was God's plan from the very beginning. 
But we stand here today in a culture where it's been broken. So how do we pick up the pieces? What, what do we do living where we're living in the culture we're living? Do we just, do we just put our head in the sands? Do we just um, go out to some mountainous area and just live by ourselves while our culture around us goes crazy? What do we do? Let me give you some advice here this morning. Number one, we must be Jesus in our broken world. I understand here, what we've just read is before the fall of man. The world is a perfect place. We have a perfect union. When sin enters the world, it messes everything up. It messes our bodies up. It messes our minds up. And it, too, messes our relationships up. And so we find ourselves in a broken world. What do we do? We're not here to throw stones at the people, even in this assembly, who've experienced all the things that I've been talking about so far this morning. We're living the consequences of the sexual revolution in America. So none of us are here to, if you come in here today and and, and you're divorced, or you're a single mother or a single father, or you struggle with same-sex attraction, our goal here today is not to, um, not to make you feel guilty. Our goal here today is not to cast stones at you. I would guarantee you, you better than almost anybody in this audience could explain the real-life consequences of the statistics I've given. You live it. You know the pain of trying to raise a child by yourself. You know the challenge. Many of you in this audience, you know the hurt of what divorce has caused in your life. I don't care what age you were when your parents were divorced. There is a pain to do with that. And so many in this audience live with that. And our goal here is not to come here and throw stones. In the middle of this, we want to be Jesus. For the divorced person, we have people here who minister to divorced people, who want to help them get past this, who want to prepare them to say, you know, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Whatever you did to contribute to that divorce, you need to repent of, but you need to learn, and you need to do better. You know, for the single mother, you're familiar. We have a single mother's ministry here in this church that does amazing things. We're not here to cast stones. I heard one of the best ideas I've heard in a long time from one of our elders the other day is that every life group, the single mothers meet on Wednesday nights, every life group that meets on Sunday ought to adopt a single mom and their children into their life group. Because here's one of the promises of Jesus. Let me give this to you. Jesus says when you begin to obey him and you come into his family, he will give you a hundred times mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. So here's what I would say to the single moms today. We're here to walk into this brokenness and to help you through that. For the people in this audience struggling with same-sex attraction, we're not the people out on the street screaming at you. We understand everybody in this audience has some kind of sin issue in their life. We have a group called the Barnabas Group that meets to help people with that. This is doing great, great work in our community. And if you were to need that, I would encourage you to be a part of that. You see, what we've got to first of all do is we've got to be Jesus in the middle of this brokenness. And I guarantee you there's almost no one in this audience today who's not been touched, affected, or hurt by the cold statistics I gave a few moments ago. To you, they're not cold statistics. They're your life. And I'm so sorry. 
Every one of us, but by the grace of God, could be there. Every one of us married has had that moment in our marriage where we had to make a decision whether we were going to stay together or not. I can remember the conversation on the beach in Pensacola where we finally had to say, this is really not working. Are we going to stick together or not? So we all could be there. And so I, don't, I, I feel in preaching this. But here's, here's what we've got to do, though. Number two, we must rationally defend traditional marriage. There's got to be a case made in our culture today for marriage as God defines it. You see, here's what I hear. I even hear this from my own children because they're growing up in a different day than I grew up. What right do we have to impose our beliefs on other people? If they want to have a male-male marriage or a female-female marriage, I don't like it, Dad. I don't believe it's right. But what reason do we have that we can, we can pass laws that tell them they can't do that? Well, first of all, let me say this. This is not just a Christian issue. You cannot study any culture, any religion worldwide where marriage has not been defined in the long run is between a man and a woman. It's just not there. So this is not simply a Christian issue. Number two, there's no way to walk away from this issue without making moral judgments. However, every, every law we have is a moral judgment. Every law. So, so you, you cannot escape and say, I'm not going to make a moral judgment. You're going to make a moral judgment. If you decide it's okay for a man to marry another man or a woman to marry another woman, you're making a moral judgment if you're not going to include polygamy. See, everybody can draw a line. Or you can draw it on two people, three people. There's a group in our country that says you ought to be able to marry your, your, your pet. There's other people who say you ought to be able to marry your a minor. I mean, the, it goes on and on and on. So, so you cannot escape making a moral judgment. And that's why we have laws. And so when we come to this, what right do we have? What right we have is we want to define law in a way that's most healthy for society. And think about this for a moment. How arrogant could it be or is it for us, in, after all the history of mankind, marriage being defined in one way for all these centuries, for us all of a sudden to pop up and say, we're going to redefine this ancient institution that's been true in every culture, and we think we can play with this, redefine this with no consequences. That's arrogant. Now, I admit to you today, we are losing the battle. People would say to us today, we are on the wrong side of history. But I would say to you today, it's a battle worth fighting. For our children, for our grandchildren, and for our children after that. Because they're going to wake up just like we've woke up in a culture we didn't know we'd wake up in that's going to get worse. And I want to tell you, I think there's hope. One of the things I've studied this this week, in 1973, when the abortion ruling came down to the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade, a majority of Americans were pro-abortion. But Christian people and other people through the last decades have talked, have argued persuasively, have given rational reasons to believe different. And do you realize this? This, this shocked me. Every succeeding generation since that ruling has been more pro-life than the previous. It's still a rational debate in the public square. 
Our challenge on this issue is the leaders of the new issue would like this not to be a debate. They would like to put this not in the realm of abortion. They would like to put this in the realm of racism. And if they can do that, then they can push it out of the public square. But what we've got to do is what we've got to do is we've got to make not just emotionally passionate reasoning, we've got to give rational reasons for what we believe. What I think is many of our children are not growing up hearing the case. They make a statement like, well, what right do we have to make a moral judgment? Even in my own life, there's a part of me that would say that. Oh, I mean, why can we as Christians impose our beliefs? Well, if you think a little deeper, you'll find out everybody is going to make some kind of moral judgment on this issue. The question is, where will you draw the line? Everybody's got to define marriage. Number three, we must reteach the purpose of marriage. You see, in traditional and ancient cultures, not until the last century or so, have we redefined marriage as basically a place for me to have my emotional and sexual needs met. The foundation of society was you would link a man and a woman together as husband and wife so that when they have children, the children have a mom and a dad. It was there for permanence and stability for the culture. And no culture has survived very long when that has been defeated. The ancient view is, yes, marriage can lead you to sexual fulfillment and emotional fulfillment. But that is not the foundation reason for marriage. The foundation reason is for a companionship in a covenant that is, long la- that is lifetime and that can be broken only in the most extreme cases. It was the foundation of everything. Our revisionist view says it's about me. I have Christian people come to me all the time and say, buddy, I really want to get a divorce. Well, well, why? What's been going on? Tell me, please. I need to understand this. Well, I'm just not happy. And then they make a case God never made. I know God wants me to be happy. My, My friends, if happiness is our foundation, we're in trouble because happiness can come and it can go. But what we've got to do is make this case of what marriage is all about. Because here's what's happened. Marriage has become more about the desires of adults than the needs of children. Because here's who's being hurt in this is the children. Now, number four, we must start early in our children's lives. We've got to start this early. They're, they're not going to hear this on TV. And so is, is in our homes, we've got to teach this. We've got to teach our children the challenge, the work, the beauty, the, the joy of marriage. In our church, I think a great challenge for us is that this needs to become a part of our curriculum from our children's ministry, through our youth ministry, through our campus ministry. We've got to teach this early. And then number five, we must honor the role models among us. You see, one one thing we need to do is we need to honor those people among us who have stuck it out and been blessed, who've hung in there. We have examples. We have role models. And whether some of us have blown it or not, we need to honor those role models and bring them up in front of our people and our children to see. They're, they're kids growing up today, and they're okay with redefining marriage because they've not seen successful marriages. 
And their view is it's just flat not working, so why we keep fooling with the system that doesn't work? We need, to, we need to elevate that. So I hope you'll take those five points and think about that. Let me just say what we've said the last two Sundays. Last Sunday, we talked about the breakdown of the church family. Church attendance, church commitment, we all know it's going down, 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 down. Today, we talk about the breakdown of the family. It's a scary time. It's discouraging. Many of you were asking me this morning, because you, maybe you saw in the bulletin, or you heard from someone that, that I asked for prayers last Sunday in second service. I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's because of this. My human side of me, when I look at what's going on in families, and I look at what's going on in the church family, guys, we're part of a great church, but we, we struggle for commitment. It's, it's very discouraging. And, and, and you, look at it, you look at the path of our culture right now, and, and it, can, it can devastate you. Because it appears we are losing the battle. And I don't want to head, uh, put my head in the sand. But what I do want us to do is I do want us to believe that things can be different. And here's, here's our only hope. This is our only hope. Our only hope is a God-given revival. That's our only hope, guys. That's what we got to have. Now, it's it's God-given. We can't manipulate it. God brings revival when God chooses to bring revival. But we can't ask for it. And and to solve what's going on among us is so big that it's going to take a divine intervention. You understand what I'm saying? Because what we need more than anything else because is we need a revival. Now, now, where does revival start? Revival starts with the people of God. Man, I appreciate so much people like Rod McFarlane and his friend Andy that are in the courts and that are working to defend traditional marriage. I think we need to do that. I think we need to vote on those things. You know, I, I don't bring much politics into the pulpit. I don't believe in doing it. But I think this is an issue where we've got to take a stand. But, but let's do remember this, guys. The only people we can really change, we know we can change, is us. And so real revival has got to start with us. And, and, and even smaller than that, real revival's got to start with me. Real revival's got to start with you. That's our only hope, guys. It's for God to intervene. And God's done this in history. Things like this and worse have changed dramatically with the intervention of God. So let me ask you, I just want to start a conversation this morning. Do we really believe revival could happen? Do we believe that God could sweep across this church in such a way that we were so on fire for God that we became a model of what ministry and marriage should look like. If someone is struggling with same-sex attraction, we're the place where they can come and get help. Someone is struggling with the outcomes of divorce and what has happened in their life, we can be the place that can help them have healing. Single children growing up with single parents can come and find mothers and fathers and grandfathers. And that we can be the place where we're, we're the answer to these. We're not just a church over here in our little corner throwing rocks at what's going on in our culture. We're the, we are the answer to it. 
And, and in our own lives, we begin to build marriages and churches that are models of what it can be. That they're so caring and so loving and so fired up and so, so entangled with God that people will be drawn. Either you'll be pushed away because the fire is so hot or you'll be drawn because it is so beautiful to see things the way they're supposed to be. Now, here's what I believe, guys. If any place I know on the face of the earth, this could happen, I think it could happen at Landmark. I believe that. But I'm telling you, it needs to happen. We've got to have a revival of our commitment of being the family of God. We've got to have a revival of being family. And I, I just ask you, would you start praying about that? I'd love just to get up and preach a sermon and make it happen. I know it's not going to happen that way. I know it's going to happen when we fall on our face before God and we beg him to change us, us, us. And guys, if we don't see the need to this right now, I'm not trying to be ugly here, but we are blind. And we could be, we are God's solution. And I believe this is the place it could happen. But most of us are going to have to change our priorities. We're going to have to change our purpose in life. We're going to have to buy into what the Bible says. And we're going to have to live it out. You see, this morning, I know before we sing this song about what God can do here in this place, I know there are people here that are hurting. Some of you, what I've mentioned here has been very painful. You're not, for you, this is not just code statistics. This is your life. There's some of you right now that are struggling your marriage and you need to humble yourself and you need to ask for prayers for God to heal your marriage. There's some of you here that you are still hurting from that divorce that happened a month ago or 10 years ago or whatever. Some of you, you're hurting because of what happened with your parents and it's, it, it's overshadowed your entire life. And maybe it happened 20 years ago, but you still are dealing with the effects. Can we pray for you today? Could revival begin in your heart, in my heart today? If you need to come, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?